Hi there. Thanks for uh, stopping by. Before I jump in tonight's talk on stuff and possessions and accumulation, would just like to note that uh, everything I do is entirely 100% supported by the people who participate in the meetings and uh, all the work from the counseling to the teaching is just a listener or practitioner donated. So even if it's a, a, a small amount, every little bit helps uh, a Buddhist pastor survive. So if you're up for that, uh, the um, Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC in the PayPal and the Patreon information is on the website. So that's it. That's my pitch for keeping me going in my line of work. And tonight we're going to be talking about the uh, hoarding and accumulation uh, tendency in us human beings. And there's no place better to start than to note that the Buddhist quest for enlightenment began with relinquishing his life of opulence where he went into in his teachings uh, um, and where he talked about his early life, he noted a life of splendor surrounded by refinery and all kinds of possessions. And he noted that these possessions got in the way of seeing the truth of existence. And it was necessary for him to, uh, essentially relinquish so much of what he owned to start a spiritual quest that would ultimately result in his awakening. So why is that? Why is it that uh, possessions can get in the way of our seeing the truth of existence and are moving forward in a really meaningful life with purpose and uh, a sense of clarity? Uh, so we'll be covering that tonight. Um, I guess there's, it might as well be noted that we seem to be on an increasingly relentless pursuit of accumulation, especially uh, our country. Uh, seven to eight million Americans meet the criteria for hoarding disorder, which is living in a apartment or house with spaces that are unusable due to clutter or clutter resulting in our withdrawing from friendships and family. In the last 30 years, the time it takes, this was in, uh, I read the statistic and I was stunned. In the last 30 years, the average time it takes a house to go up in flames once a fire has started has gone down from 28 minutes to four minutes, and that's simply because of the amount of stuff we own. We own. And the Los Angeles Times reports that each household, on average, has over three hundred thousand objects. That's I can't even. I don't even know. That number is so huge. I don't even know what to make of it. Um, the average size of an American home has tripled in size over the last 50 years, yet we have no more usable space than we had back then. Um, our stuff now floods from rooms to garages, pushing cars onto the streets to the point where one out of every four houses with two-car garages cannot fit a single car in their garage. And one out of three with two car garages can't fit more than one car. And so what that means is you add those two numbers together and you get more than 50% of the houses with two car garages have so much clutter that they can't even use their garages for what they were meant for. Um, so, uh, <coughs> I should note that tonight we're talking not so much about hoarding as a disorder, of which it is the family of OC. It is in the family of OCD disorders, but it's worth noting that hoarding is a spectrum. In other words, 
while there are points where people get diagnosed with hoarding disorder, when again, they meet that criteria of unable to throw away objects, where they lose use of spaces or rooms due to clutter, and where they start withdrawing from social interactions because they're embarrassed by their living conditions or they have no place for people to sit. But everybody's in some way on the spectrum of hoarding, just like so many of us are on the spectrum, for example, of OCD in that countless individuals, I mean, the vast majority of us at times, will have some intrusive thoughts and we rely on some kind of routine in a way to alleviate the intrusive thoughts. And just as not every, you don't have to be obese to suffer from health issues if you're overweight um, or there's so many other spectrums that we can use. Um, uh, for example, people with, with who don't have fully fledged borderline personality disorder can still suffer from uh, relationships barren and uh, uh, cut off due to chronic conflict and black or white thinking. So even though we might not ever in our lives or the people we love might not ever reach the criteria of a hoarding disorder, it can still be an issue. And the Buddha certainly said for almost all people, accumulation comes at the expense of, of having a true spiritual life and a true sense of um, purpose and understanding about the meaning of our existence. So um, let's talk about that. Why is it, by the way, that it's so easy for us to accumulate? Well, as Bruce Hood in his book, uh, Possessed, points out, it might have taken skilled craftspeople a long time in the past to make a table or a couch, but with industrialization and machinery and robotics and assembly lines and moldable plastics, and uh, they can now make thousands of tables per week. So mass manufacturing, moldable plastics and stuff like that allows us to uh, create uh many, many, many logarithmically amounts more of objects. And due to the surplus, objects have become cheaper. And due to the work creating objects, um, over time, more people had money to afford objects. And then on top of it, we've developed an entire industry of advertising, which specializes in getting people to purchase things they don't really need. So it's a perfect, uh, you know, feedback loop that reinforces itself. And um, what are the motivations for accumulating things we don't need? Well, the most common is to avoid wasting things that we believe might have value. In my case, I find it very, very difficult to get rid of old electronic cables that I seem to be sometimes under the delusion will someday come back in vogue, even though there's one thing I know for sure, especially with computer cables, uh, computer uh, brands just always make new cables, rendering the old cables completely obsolete, and they never, ever come back in use. But still, I have a Ziploc bag with, or, you know, this bag with all these old cables in it that's difficult to let go of. And that's, this brings up the what's known as the endowment effect, uh, which is a psychological term for the fact objects we own, we tend to overvalue their utility and uh, usefulness. Um, other people's objects, we can pretty clearly see <laughs> have no value. So if it's your cables, I will happily throw out your cables. But if they're mine, I believe, oh my goodness, this completely obsolete um, old cable that connected a monitor to a laptop in 2007 might still have some use. It just feels more difficult to let go of. And I've 
of course, over time, learned to force myself to throw them out, but it's still difficult. Another reason why we hoard is because of there's a fear of losing important information. So people can keep ancient bank reports and credit card uh, reports under the fear that uh, maybe we'll get audited or maybe we'll need to prove some purchase, even though it happened well over 10 years ago. People keep old magazines, newspapers, um, books from different periods of their life, all uh, in this guise that somehow, in some way, will need the information. And these first two issues are easily addressed in finding a personal organizer or a CBT therapist, and so on and so forth. Uh, people who find someone to sit with them and help them make uh, more rational choices about what objects they keep can find that a great value and benefit. But there's a third reason that people accumulate that is far more difficult to address and is far more pernicious. And that is the emotional meaning that we give the objects around us that the objects take on. We imbue them with uh, essences and qualities that they actually don't have. And it's these um, essences or these qualities that we believe they have that makes throwing out or giving away or downsizing uh, or letting go of things to be so difficult. From an early age, the great psychologist D.W. Winnicott noted that uh, there's this transitional stage where the child has to spend more time without the mother, and maybe the child has to start sleeping alone in a, a room, or the there's another sibling the mother needs to take care of, or the mother and father start working or whatever, but there's more time that the child will spend wandering uh, rooms alone or without direct immediate supervision. And at this age, the child will claim an object like a blanket or a toy to help them reduce anxiety when their parents aren't available. So in this sense, our first relationship with objects are that they feel or represent other people for us. This is why in psychology, there's an entire school called the Object Relations School. And by objects, psychologists meant people, how we relate to people. But people start out for us as mixed up with objects, or I should say objects start out for us, the important objects represent caregivers for us. The child claims the toy or the blanket and uh, gets a sense of confidence to explore one's environment. The, the blanket represents the mother, the child holds it, and it feels like the mother holding the child's hand. And that creates what's called a sense of object constancy, that the mother's presence is there, even though the child can't see the mother. There's this sense that there's care around. So our first relationship with objects is that they're imbued with the protective essence of another person that's important to us. And this essence stays with us in many ways throughout our lifespan. Over time, the transitional object stage then blossoms into a stage where, according to Winnicott, the child plays. And in playing, the child now claims a lot of different toys and objects and uses these toys to represent different family members. So, you know, uh, some character from Toy Story might interact with a dinosaur and the Toy Story might represent 
of a father or a teacher or brother, and the dinosaur might represent another family member, like a sibling, and the child will enact the play. But what he's doing is reenacting some of the interactions he's seen between or she's seen between family members. Um, sometimes the child will express fantasies about other people with the toys. Sometimes the child will express uh, aggression. Freud noted, uh, or desire upon the toys. And this becomes a way for the child to signal or express its feelings about other people. So once again, we see that objects represent human beings uh, for us. We're a representational species as a species that acquired language we make sense of the world by representing our experience in words and pictures, and we also represent it in possessions. And many people have noted that this continues into adult life where we, we represent our identity uh, over time uh, by clinging on to objects that signal who we are. In my neighborhood, I'm amused to say there are people that have these ridiculous Mets flags hanging outside of their building. The Mets are a baseball team. I don't follow baseball, but even if I did, I'd, I'd have to say I find their logo and the flag utterly ridiculous. And, uh, but then, of course, this is one of only many ways that people signal their identity. I guess for them, the Mets represent some quality of being an upstart or being pure members of Brooklyn and Queens or uh, some aspect of self is represented. I worked with somebody who collected uh, sci-fi and Star Wars figurines and had this was a very talented professional guy, but he had a whole bookcase, not filled with books in his office, but figurines, different little toys, of, you know, and each of those figurines clearly represented an aspect of himself or other people for him. I, I'm not, you know, I, we all have that thing that we collect and I have eyeglasses that I collect and I have more eyeglasses than I need. And part of the joy is the, yes, the dopamine rewards of going on eBay and hunting down glasses that normally would cost uh, maybe, um, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of dollars and sourcing them for very cheap. And then, uh, you know, putting my prescriptions in them. And for me, the glasses begin to represent different aspects of self. I have glasses that feel playful, glasses that are serious, glasses that are good for exercise, glasses that I use. I'll probably take a specific pair for the retreat, and I associate maybe those glasses with the spiritual part of self. So possessions represent others. They represent aspects of ourself. And this is why it's so painful to discard objects. For example, we have heir heirlooms. And when there are deceased members of our family, um, it's very, very difficult to throw out something that they own, even if it has very little value to us. I have an old watch by my dad that um, is long been unusable, but asked me to part with it, and that's impossible. Um, I have a old, I have a painting of my dad's, which is just this crayon drawing of a dog that was called Poopy Dog, and so it's, I have it framed, and it looks like a child's drawing of a dog, and it, but it means something to me, and it would be throwing away these objects would be like discarding my father into a bin. So I don't do it. In that way, <clears throat> something of my dad's essence feels imbued in these objects. And so for many of us, 
collect entire heirlooms and 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 are after our family members may pass on we are uh, laden with entire garages filled with objects and it can take an enormous amount of time and effort to get up the strength to even let go of of things we know will serve absolutely no purpose and in, and it's hard to figure out which objects hold even greater essence to us than others. In this way, uh, in attachment theory, objects are known as, uh, or possessions are known as dead objects. Live objects, real objects are, or real attachments are uh, real people. Objects are dead attachments. They don't give us what we really need from others, which is, presence, emotional mirroring, empathy, uh, appreciation, uh, kindness. Objects can't uh, give us those necessary qualities, yet at the same time, objects are, um, uh, yet they create the feeling that other people are there or still in our life. So, for example, uh, people who have grown up children who've moved away from home and uh, are no longer available to them as much as they would like might keep excessive accumulation of all of their children's uh, accomplishments, their old uh, school reports, their old homework, their old clothing from different grades to create a sense that their family is still present. Um, in many ways, uh, over-accumulation is similar to binge-watching TV or even at time food binges in that it's something we turn to to alleviate loneliness or a lack of connection at times. So, we cling to possessions to represent ourselves, to represent others, but the, the emotional um, essences we imbue in them go even further than that, and that would be enough in and of itself. <laughs> but it's even so much more than that, because um, objects can convey what's called status. It signals our status to others. So children will make their parents wait in long lines to purchase the latest toys, which in case you don't know, are apparently things like styling heads and Hot Wheels and drawing robots and my favorite Play-Doh ice cream carts. So these are things, and the child makes the parent uh, purchase these toys, not so much because they're driven with a a crave a desire to actually play with the toys but because the child's anxious that if it doesn't own the toy it won't be able to signal the status of i have something cool to their friends in third grade or fourth grade so even that early in life as early as six, seven, eight, children become obsessed with signaling status. And by, uh, and why is this? Well, um, uh, some note that uh, Darwin, for example, said that in the animal kingdom, the male of species tend to be more colorful compared to uh, females. And this is to attract attention for the purposes of mating. Uh, that might be the roots of it. What is absolutely clear is that in feudal times, objects conferred and bestowed one's status as part of the noble class. In fact, there were laws passed that forbid peasants from wearing rings, pins, colored silks, and colored velvet, and so on and so forth. Only the noble uh, women and men could actually own those kind of and wear those kind of objects. Yet, interestingly enough, there was a third class of merchants that were not noblemen, but were not peasants either. And these noblemen, as a way to try to 
signal their status as being closer to the those of the nobles uh, class would purchase excessive objects and mantelpieces. And uh, if you get a chance ever to go through some of Europe's uh, wonderful old museums, you can actually walk through and see just the amount of different kinds of possessions people in the 15 and 1600s would cling to, to and 1300s to cling to, to to confer a sense of status. Today, we see the status that luxury objects convey. Uh, people shop for Gucci, Dior, Omega, Porsches, Maseratis, Saint Laurent, Fendi, Louis Vuitton, Manolo Blahniks, BMWs, Sennheiser, headphones. And these products cost so many, many times uh, other products that offer familiar features and f familiar functions. Yet we people grasp onto these objects to signal their wealth. And uh, if you ever want to see this in action, please do visit New York's wonderful Chinatown, not just for the food and the culture, but you can stand on the busy corners and watch individuals purchase countless cheap knockoffs of famous brands. And there's desperate, you know, grabbing on and huge crowds of people trying to get fake Gucci. So, but beyond the sense of identity objects represent and the tribal status they convey, Objects can also be imbued with a sense of safety and protection that make us feel uh, less vulnerable to change in our life. As, um, oh, I, I want to remember the psychologist's name is uh, noted by uh, Gail Steckety and Randy Frost in their book, uh, Stuff, The Meaning of Things. Um, they, they notice, so many other psychologists have noted that individuals who had childhoods with instability, such as, for instance, people who in childhood had to move a lot, or families that periodically would experience financial insecurity, uh, childhoods where individuals grew up in the background of uh, uh, maybe imminent war or uh, other kinds of, uh, or forced migration, events that don't always raise to the level of trauma, but are very disturbing. There's been shown to be a market correlation with adult hoarding and adult accumulation. So we accumulate and we we hold on to more and more objects to create a sense of stability. People whose, for instance, whose parent, a parent would chronically or occasionally be unemployed. And during the unemployment, the presence of gifts and maybe objects like TVs would be taken away. And so holding on to objects was associated very early on with being safer in the world. So in accumulating objects, these individuals feel safer. So we've seen that objects can represent the presence of other people for us. They can represent ourse ourselves and give ourselves a sense of who we are. We've seen that objects can convey status to others, can make it seem that we're of a, for instance, uh, uh, a more significant uh, role or class in life. And we've seen that objects can provide a sense of security and stability where there wasn't any in childhood. So what's the problem with all this, if it gives us all of these qualities? Well, as I noted at the beginning, the Buddha's spiritual quest started with an encounter in the world with uh, um, uh, mortality. It said that 
at some point and hit around the age of 28, he was traveling outside of his uh, luxurious uh, uh, housing. And on this trip in the city or the city state that surrounded his house, um, he encountered on the very same day uh, someone who was very, very old, someone who was very, very sick and invalid. And he also encountered a corpse, a body. And this existential confrontation revealed to him in this moment, this, uh, this confrontation with these, these three human encounters conveyed this realization of how deeply fragile life is that life is a journey uh, towards our death in many ways, that each moment arrives without any guarantees. And for the Buddha, he realized as well that one of the significant insights into existence is what he called dukkha, and that anything we cling to, uh, any object we cling to, for a sense of protection will ultimately disappoint us, will dismay us, because in the long term, or in maybe even the short term, that which gives us a real sense of meaning is never uh, is never enhanced by possessions. I worked in hospice, I worked, I volunteered in hospice uh, situations, uh, settings, and I've never met anyone who's facing mortality who, when they look back on their life, is deeply grateful for all their possessions. Invariably, when people look back on their life and take stock, even those not facing imminent uh, mortality, when we take stock of our life and we review what has really brought me joy, rarely our objects or possessions show up, we almost invariably reflect on the times or the individuals with whom we're close, the people we love, maybe deeply meaningful experiences from times we travel to other cultures uh, to see different ways of life, maybe creative moments in our life, um, or times in life where we experienced what the Buddha called Santi Nusati, a great sense of peace of mind. But nobody, when they're reviewing what gives their life a sense of meaning, what do they feel most grateful for, starts listing off the, um, I don't know, the clothes that fill their wardrobes. So in this way, uh holding on to things um, creates this distortion that we have more protection and more stability than we really have. And uh, it allows us to pass our lives without truly at times stepping back and taking stock and asking these deeper, more important questions that we reflect on when we see the truth we see past all of the objects, all of the bank accounts, all of the uh, anything that confers confers any sense of status, and we're faced with the fact that we are human beings with limited amount of time, and we are asked to look back in our life and just ask, "What do I feel the greatest sense of self-esteem about?" Um, the Buddha noted that. One of the most important uh, attributes of a sense of esteem, a sense of purpose, a sense of a foundation for spiritual practice is having what he called Kalyanamita, wise spiritual friends. That's what he said was the foundation of a spiritual life. And yet, just like TV binge watching, Possessions can mask our need for these connections, our need for these vital bonds with others. Um, 
in the Upadana Sutta, which is the Sutta on clinging, the Buddha noticed that um, in our attachment to objects, <clears throat> it obscures one of the greatest joys in life, which comes from giving to others. Uh, there's this wonderful study that showed that in the when you give someone $20 and you ask them to spend it on themselves, very quickly, the first day, they'll feel good about it. But six months later, they won't remember what they spent it on, and that'll have no positive value on their sense of self-esteem. But if you give someone $20 and you ask them to give away that $20, six months later, they'll remember who they gave it to, why they gave it to that person, and they'll feel a noticeable bump in their own sense of self-esteem just remembering the giving away. In virtually every study we see by Sandra Leah Bomorski, Jonathan Haidt, Martin Seligman, and all the positive psychologists, um, the altruistic being willing to uh, let go of possessions and give it to those who need um, has vast neural rewards. Owning things has virtually none. Um, it confers no self-esteem. It uh, confers no sense of, of um, neural rewards. There's no dopamine uh, that's secreted after you own something. But when people give away or donate objects, uh, what they find is a massive secretion of oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine, all of these which boost our mood and counteract stress in the form of cortisol. So having not letting go of uh, deprives us of one of the greatest ways like volunteerism and meditation and spiritual practice and connecting with others, it deprives us of one of the most beneficial ways to uh, enhance our, our lives and create a far better internal landscape. In the Atarakana Sutta, the Buddha noted that those who are impassioned by their possessions, dazed by the pleasures that they bring, cannot awaken, for they are unaware that they have been trapped like fish on a lure. I love that quote. So one of the great ways the Buddha uh, reminded people of these truths were in the five daily reflections, which are uh, simply reminding ourselves in our spiritual practice, our meditation, I'm of the nature to grow old. I'm of the nature to become sick. I'm of the nature to die. I'm of the nature to be separated from that which is dear to me. And all I really own are the karma or the quality, the kindness of my actions. So, Tonight in our meditation, we're first going to connect with the joy and peace of mind that simply sitting and meditating can bring, which requires owning nothing. And then we're also going to do the Marana Sati practice at the very end, where we recite the five great truths of life. So find a really comfortable seated position. I'm going to, in a moment, turn on my fan because I am sweltering. Um, I would note that if you'd like to uh, delve deeper into tonight's topic, uh, the books that I was referring to the most were uh, Playing in Reality by Winnicott, the great developmental psychologist. Uh, the book Possessed, Why We Want More Than We Need by Bruce Hood and Stuff. Hoarding and the Meeting of Things by Randy Frost and Gail Steckety. So those are uh, ways you can learn more. And for now, just find a really comfortable seated position, close the eyes, and 
just allow yourself to bring your attention into your body. I'm going to turn on a fan. So one of the easiest ways to come home to the body is first just take a nice, long, smooth in-breath that's really full, and then try to extend the out-breath as long as you can. The longer we extend the out-breath, the more we engage the parasympathetic, which is the brakes for the autonomic nervous system. So if you're ever feeling stressed or anxious or uh, worried or too busy, and you want to start by where it's most effective to address these states, you simply want to find your breath and make sure that the in-breath is really complete and the long, the out-breaths, the exhalations are as slow, smooth, unforced. You're not pushing out air, you're just releasing it. And in very few breaths, we can begin to feel the jumpiness at times of attention, the franticness of the mind looking around for stuff to latch onto, objects to cling onto, plans to make, begin to settle. And if we want to enhance this effect, uh, we can also soften the belly. When the belly is tight, it means the vagal nerve isn't active. We're still somewhat in sympathetic arousal, uh, threat detection state. And when we soften, make the belly really pliant, round, release as much as you can any of that tendency to hold the belly taut. Remind yourself nobody's looking right now, so you can just let it all out. That mimics the state of rest and digest. When people are most settled and soothed, their abdominal muscles release. A third way is we can rotate the shoulders up and then drop them so that they're hanging comfortably away from the head. For many of us, busyness habitually brings action potential to the shoulders when we become hunched over computers, writing, doing chores, frantically typing emails or text messages. And it's only when the shoulders are back and drop down that we're in that state of rest and digest. So we want to bring the mind 
to a peaceful state by first bringing the body. Where the body goes, the mind will invariably follow. So long exhalation, soft, pliant ballet, shoulders that are rotated back to open up the chest and dropped heavily away from the head, letting gravity take its hold of our arms. And then finally, softening any muscles in the face we habitually tighten. And allowing the eyes to settle behind the eyelids. When the eyes settle, I find that the mind is more likely to land in the present. Just as like in the world when our, we're busy and our eyes bounce around from one thing to another. And when we finally have accomplished everything we need to accomplish and we rest, our gaze can settle on something. In our meditation, settling the eyes settles the mind. And for a while, let's just practice bringing our life to a complete stop and rest. That ability at any time to carve out room to come to a stop and land in the present with nowhere to go, nothing to do, appreciating the tremendous gift of being alive, not taking it for granted. And every time your mind wanders off to an unaddressed topic or an unresolved topic from the day or plans about the future or all the different activities we could be doing elsewhere, Just promise these topics that if we just allow ourselves a little time to just truly recharge and land in our lives, we'll be happy to return to them. But there's nothing so important that It's of more value than at times just learning to take care of our minds by resting it. And every time we find awareness drifting away from the present, from the sounds around us, the breath, the sensations of our body. 
from just resting in this moment. When we find the mind wandering away to thoughts and memories and what ifs, plans, just bring it back again and again, no frustration. No judgment. Just gratitude for having this time where we can reconnect with our bodies. Show it appreciation for all it does to keep us alive. Reward it with a really nourishing breath.
So at this point, if you'd like, bring to mind something in our life that we accumulate, maybe beyond or definitely beyond our real needs, beyond what the Buddha called the requisite amounts that we really need just to have any quality of life. And hopefully something in life that is difficult to let go of, even though we know it's not bringing us much value right now. Clothes that others could wear that we rarely wear. books that others could read, that we've already read. Music that we no longer put on, but still hold on to. Objects of others that remind us of others, but really, in truth, hold very little essence of that person. And just what is it we feel when we visualize letting go? See if you can find the somatic discomfort the feeling of vulnerability, the feeling of unease that can be active. The inner child, as it were, children don't like to share their toys. And the inner child in us never wants to let go. And so we always feel at times, this tightness arise in the belly or in the throat. This sense of jumpiness in the mind at the idea of putting aside some of the stuff we've accumulated. I know every time I give away my used eyeglasses or throw away the broken ones, I have to really soften the belly and release the tension because my inner child really doesn't want to let go. And bringing to mind a time that we shared, offered something that had some value to us, to someone else, and saw appreciation. See if you can connect with the positive feelings of pride, well-being, sense of joy or comfort that that brings. I'm thinking of something right now that I recently gave away, and it still brings this really positive feeling of 
just the real boost. And just notice the difference between the tightness of holding on, the tension of clinging, and the joy and release and comfort that comes with at times letting go. And finally, we can, those who wish to join in, can recite the Marana Sati in your mind to close our practice. I am of the nature to grow old. Just let that truth sink in. No one gets to escape growing old. I am of the nature to become sick. And if you reflect pretty much everyone you've ever known at times has become ill. And the older we become, the more prone or subject to illness. I am of the nature to die. Hopefully this is not news. I am of the, all that is dear to me, I will be separated from. When the time comes, we can't bring any of it with us. All the sense of stability or safety objects can confer, can confer for a while, but eventually fade and reveal that they don't really protect us from the great truths of life. Only the kindness of my actions lend purpose or meaning to my life. It's only the quality of my actions that I really own. So thank you for your practice. And uh, so take your time and open your eyes.